Hey there, I'm Joanne Tambrakis, and this is Marketing, Mindfulness, and Martinis. Unfiltered conversations, or as I like to say, opinions shaken, not stirred, on what's changing and what's not in business and in life as we enter into the next normal. So pour yourself your beverage of choice, and let's get to it. I am delighted to welcome one of my absolute favorite NYU SPS colleagues to the podcast today, Dr. Carolyn Kassane. Joanne, it is such a delight to be here with you. I have been so looking forward to this. Um, I also just want to say congratulations for starting this podcast. I think it's really awesome in so many different ways, a great contribution and really fun. And I love the fact that you have martinis in your title. <laughs> yes, that's the that's the euphemism for fun. Um, you don't have to drink martinis to be on my podcast, but I do know that you do. Um, and notice that when I introduced Carolyn, I stressed the term doctor after that hard editorial in the Wall Street Journal. I forget when it was because I've lost any concept of time and space, denouncing the importance and variety and validity of learning of earning a doctorate in a in a discipline. So your degree is very well earned. Carolyn is the academic director for the Center for Global Affairs at NYUSPS, as well as a non-resident fellow at the Payne Institute Council on Foreign Relations. She's received several awards, all well deserved, for excellence in teaching and is considered a thought leader and expert in the areas of energy, the environment, resource security, and the geopolitics of energy. I hope I got all of that in there. Where, <laughs> And in all areas in which she has published extensively. She's also been an integral part of a brand new entity at NYUSPS, which we will talk about later in the podcast. So, Carolyn, one of the things I always like to start with my podcast is to tell us a little bit about what got you to where you are right now. Wow. Where to begin? Day one. <laughs> um, you know, I have to say when I look back, and I, it's a question that I get from students, it kind of goes back to a very interesting moment when I was in graduate school and... One of my advisors suggested that I um, apply for an area language studies fellowship. And at the time, I was very interested in Russia, and I was studying, kind of doing Russian regional studies. I had uh, traveled in Russia, and I had lived in Russia for a year between 1993 and 1994, and was in graduate school at the Columbia. And my advisor said, hey, apply to this fellowship. And... I said, I don't know. I was like, okay, I'll apply. And I did. And it was for, um, basically, I put together an application to do area language studies in Kazakhstan and in Russia. And full transparency, I knew very little about Kazakhstan. I did know something about Russia. but And the only reason why I added Kazakhstan was because of this conversation I had with my advisor that she had read something about Kazakhstan that morning and we were both like, Oh, that's so curious. And then I thought, Oh, I'm going to put Kazakhstan in my application. One, because I didn't have a lot of faith in the fact that I would actually get it. <laughs> so <laughs> long story short, I, I ended up getting a, um, uh, the fellowship for a, and for a year. So it was a year of area language studies 
training uh, to go to Kazakhstan and to go to Russia. And I should emphasize that this was the kind of the, the 1997 and this was kind of going to the former Soviet Union. A, um, not many people in the United States knew a lot about Kazakhstan. And this was a, um, a kind of a, it, this, this fellowship had a national security angle. So it was funded by the U.S. government. And it was to, you know, help prepare students, graduate students, to um, to examine understudied areas of the world and to learn languages. So I had the opportunity to go to Kazakhstan and then go to Russia, discovered that I was really became very quickly enthralled with Kazakhstan and started to connect sort of the political transition that Kazakhstan was 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 going through with its development of its natural resources, specifically oil, um, where there was a big rush to kind of get to Kazakhstan and get, get to the oil amongst the, um, a lot of international energy players, Chevron, Conoco, like European majors that were trying to kind of get into Kazakhstan to um, exploit the resources. And it was quite fascinating to sort of, watch this. And I kind of then decided that I wanted to kind of spend a lot more time studying natural resources. So my career kind of then kind of started to focus more on political transition and the role of resources and the role of natural resources. And and how did you wind up getting to your current position? Um, Like all things, right? Kind of. um, So let's see. So I went back to Kazakhstan on a Fulbright. So after I did this language and area studies fellowship, I came back to the United States, was, you know, did my dissertation proposal and, and had the, the, good op, the good fortune to get a, a Fulbright to go to Kazakhstan for a year to complete my dissertation. Uh, and when I came back, you know, I defended my dissertation and didn't really think about full-time teaching was kind of doing a lot of more sort of development and consulting work. And in, but I did want to get my sort of try it out. So I was able to adjunct at Columbia and I taught two classes at Columbia as an adjunct and I really enjoyed it. It was, it was fun. It was different. It was absolutely scary. Like I've never been so scared in my life. When I think back to my first class where, you know, you're kind of like, you feel naked in front of, you know, 30, 30 students. And you suddenly have, you suddenly have imposter syndrome, like all over the place. It's like imposter written on my forehead. Uh, So it was really, really scary. But there was a part of me that felt like, oh my gosh, this is something I really want to get better at. Um, And uh, a someone I knew at Columbia called me up and said, I found your job. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, I found your job. I know what you're going to be doing in September. And it was a position at Colgate university, uh, teaching. And I said, Colgate, that's like in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York. (laughs) And he said, he said, it's for you. This job has your name on it. You have to go there. And he had worked there as an administrator and he said, it's a really special campus. It's all 
it's undergrads and you'll, you'll, you'll love it. Worked out that I got the position. I was there for two years, but it was at the same time that the, the center for global affairs at NYU was getting off the ground. And I had met the, the woman who was to become the divisional dean of the CGA. I met her in 2003 when I adjuncted at NYU um, and she hired me and she told me about her vision to start a new master's program in global affairs. And I was, again, kind of, she had me at hello. I wanted to be a part of it. So I went up to Colgate, taught for two years. And then, um, then the center was, 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 was ready. So I joined the center in 2005, 2005. Um, so I was the second full-time faculty member to join the CGA. So it very much felt like a startup. We were, you know, a team of three and, you know, welcoming students and building out a curriculum and building out a program and uh, I loved every minute of it. It was um, I have loved every minute of it since I've been there. It really is. But it's it's funny because you think of a large university like NYU, and you don't think of startups within such a huge organization. But it but it does essentially exist. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? The Center for Global Affairs for those I know what it means, but for those who are listening, who may be like, well, what exactly does that mean? Sure. Uh, yeah. So what it is we do, we train graduate students and we examine global affairs. We do it through eight concentrations, looking at the lens of transnational security. I run our energy and environmental policy concentration, but we have global economy. We have global gender studies, international development, humanitarian assistance, international law and human rights, peace building, uh, um, international relations, global futures. So if you're sort of like thinking and you're looking at it, the world, like how can you make sense of it? How can you understand it? And also, you know, sort of training young people for the, the careers um, in, for careers in global affairs so that they can thrive and that they can make a difference. I mean, our, our mission is to prepare global citizens who will change the world, right? So I like that, I like that mission. The world needs some changing right now. <laughs> you know, every year we every year we come back to our mission is our mission is is still relevant. <laughs> it's it's still relevant. I guess we're always going to be evolving, even when we get to a place that we maybe feels a little bit better than it does at the moment. But when I was um, preparing for this, I thought, my gosh, the timing of our of recording this session is pretty interesting given what you do with our new administration in office and President Biden just signed the executive order rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement and revoking the permit for the Keystone Pipeline. Your thoughts? Well, very exciting. Uh, also, I guess, you know, for someone like me, in fact, I'm just, just, just literally today, I completed uh, teaching a January term course on climate change, security, and the way forward. And the expectation, I mean, Biden didn't surprise anyone by rejoining the Paris Agreement. It was something that he pledged to do um, when he was campaigning. And it was something that he really, we, I think those of us in the climate community trusted that he was going to act on that, on that pledge and that promise. Uh, so I think it's a really, it was a significant move 
not just because of the importance of, you know, U.S. global leadership um, around addressing climate change, but I think it has broader, deeper meanings for kind of the U.S. is back in the game that we want to uh, we want to repair and heal broken alliances and broken relationships. And we want to, you know, reset ourselves with regards to, you know, we really did retreat for four years. I think, you know, many, many allies who have historically been allies with the United States lost faith, lost trust, confidence in the credibility of the United States to remain true to its values, true to what it has stood for. And much of that was was very much, you know, uh, exposed for being vulnerable, for being at risk of, of breaking to the point that it, it it could, might not have been able to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that, you know, Biden's team is doing really like right out of the gate is to say, we're back. We want mm-hmm. to engage. We want to step back in to a, 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 a leadership position, a global leadership position in which we are a respected partner and that what we say we mean, and we will sort of act act on what we say. So I think it's um, quite tremendous. Uh, you know, the the keystone, the re- the the revoking of the keystone um, license is is really really interesting. And I think uh, because again, going back to Biden's campaign, and I think in the last. The last debate, one of the things he said is, you know, the United States, you know, needs to be making an energy transition. We need to be moving off of oil and gas. And I think for probably many people, they thought, you know, the United States is a major oil and gas producer. We are, you know, the largest gas producer in the world. We are in the top three of oil producers in the world. We are sometimes the top oil producer in the world. What does it mean for, you know, a a presidential candidate to suggest that we're going to move off of oil and gas? And so that is very symbolic that that was a move. And it's, it's also within the realm of what the federal government can do. And there's also a lot that the federal government can't do because much of our current production is on private land, but it is a, a, you know, a a kind of a, a shout out to say, listen, we're not going to be issuing new permits, uh, for, you know, uh, exploration and production on federal lands and hydro, uh, uh, hydrocarbon based infrastructure is, is going to be, receive a lot greater scrutiny moving forward. Whereas with Trump, he basically deregulated a lot in the oil and gas space, made it much easier for, you know, producers to operate and, um, you know, much to the dismay and to the, um, you know, of environmentalists who have been sort of seeking limitations on methane emissions and the list goes on and on and on. 
So I know why these things are all bad, but I don't know if everyone who's listening is because we hear so much conversation about it and and there's so many different sides to it. I obviously am on the same side as you. I believe in the environment and, and climate change and things like that. But can you explain just in really basic terms for anyone who's listening who doesn't really get why we're why we need to move away from this over dependence that we have on oil? Well, I think that the, the the main reason is the contributions to climate change and to contributions to global warming. So, you know, there's some natural warming, but when we think about human-made warming, um, that you know that is driven by um, that is driven by greenhouse gas emissions. So, when we look around at various resources, oil and gas, coal being the worst they emit carbon and that carbon goes into the atmosphere and, you know, kind of contributes to a, uh, a warming climate. And one of the things that came out of the Paris Agreement from 2015 is that the world needed to stay within a two degree Celsius threshold based on pre-industrial, you know, temperature levels. And, and there was, you know, some agreement on that because the U.S. and China kind of came together and cooperated on, um, on kind of coming into Paris and saying that they were going to take action. But in 2018, you know, the IPCC, which is kind of the U.N. international body that, um, you know, comprised of, you know, many scientists um, who study climate, said that, you know, two degrees is is it's too high. We need to stay within the 1.5 degree threshold. So that's where we are now. And we've already warmed probably about 1.2, 1.3 degrees Celsius. So we're very close to, to crossing that threshold. And we just have to kind of look at the last year, wildfires in California and Australia and multiple hurricanes, like not just one hurricane, but multiple hurricanes back to back in Louisiana, we see sea level rise around the world. Some countries are getting much harder hit. So there are lots of really striking examples of the way that climate change is impacting the world, impacting societies, impacting communities. And, you know, we do know that, you know, the production of hydrocarbons contributes to warming and contributes to the carbon that's that's released into the atmosphere. So if we're going to kind of try to tackle, we're not going to combat it because we, we can't eliminate it, but at least if we can mitigate and try to you know reduce the amount of carbon that we release into the atmosphere, the only one of the only ways we can do it, there are many different ways we can do it. We can, you know, change the energy we use, we can get technology that captures the carbon, but also reducing the amount of um, oil, gas, and coal that is consumed is a is is a big part of the 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 the, the solution. And there are many uh, solutions within multiple pathways. So, climate change is something that many people believe in. I happen to believe in it, but we still have all these deniers. What do you think? I mean, I I think that's something, I don't know what the reason is. I don't know if it's just 
not marketing well to that group or, or what, what the reason is, but what can we do? How, can, how do we combat that? Or do, do we just, I, I don't know. I'm not really sure what the answer is, but. Well, so Joanne, you and I have had this conversation, right? And I think like what you do doing this, but also like on the marketing side, I think like having people understand it, I think there's a lot of miscommunication and, and disinformation. And, mm-hmm. and, and also if you think about it, like, how many young people today, even today, where, you know, climate change is, you know, a major part of the Biden administration, he's calling it a whole of government approach. And yet most young people, if you're in elementary school, high school, even college, you may not have any opportunity to study climate change while you're in school. And that's a little crazy, right? The Mm -hmm. fact that we, it's a, you know, people have called it an existential threat, this is, you know, something that is exacerbating inequality and inequities around the world. And yet p- many people don't have access to information at, at any level in terms of knowing what is reliable and knowing how to, a lot of this is very complex, but it can be brought down to, uh, be, it could be presented in a way that's accessible and that helps people to understand not just, you know, how or why it's happening, but also to understand the impacts and also what, what we all can do, um, collectively and individually. So, yeah. I I always say the best marketing is to educate our customers, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And not that this is necessarily customers, but it's the same type of thing. And, And it, when I'm, well, as I'm listening to you that we're not teaching this from a young age, it's goes back to the same thing that we're not teaching civics. So it's, it's a whole other conversation that can be had about what are we doing in the schools that we're not teaching things that are so basic that people don't yeah. even know what three branches of government are. Um, it's, it's a, a similar, a similar issue and that disinformation and that misinformation, it is just all over the place. It, it really, um, really needs to get, needs to get quelled to a degree. So I want to talk a little bit about your new venture over there. You have just launched the NYUSPS, Energy, Climate Justice, and Sustainability Lab, which sounds very impressive to me and very exciting, but I'm not sure what it means. So I want you to tell me more about it. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you so much for asking, Joanne. Yeah, no, I'm really, really excited. And, uh, your listeners will be some of the first people to uh, to hear about it. Uh, it's uh, like hot off the press. Right? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm really grateful for you know the SPS leadership who you know recognizes the value of 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 having a lab that focuses on energy, climate justice, and sustainability. And it really cut, came out of you know my own experiences. You know, sort of teaching. I've been teaching energy related courses for, you know, almost two decades. And, um, in fact, I just told my students today that, you know, 20 years ago, I wouldn't have have imagined teaching a course on climate change, right? I'm not a, I'm not a, a scientist by training. Um, and, but yet it's like, I feel this like real deep responsibility that, you know, as an educator and as someone who teaches in the energy environment space that, you know, we need to be offering more opportunities to students to learn about climate change. So, you know, I was looking at it in the context of security, which 
you know, the, the lab aims to be both like a platform for the, a, a large audience, both from within SPS and NYU, but also, um, but also like students and faculty to sort of take work that's being done across the School of Professional Studies and bring it into this lab and sort of share it with the, the larger public and um, offer opportunities for students' work to, um, to be shared, also to do events. I think that, you know, one of the things that has been kind of, I guess, the upside in a really terrible year and the, you know, the devastation and the, you know, what we've all experienced, you know, during COVID, but what we can do through Zoom and through other, you know, um, online platforms is we can bring people together from around the world. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I aim to do is to have, because I, I really, I feel the climate justice angle is really, really important. And oftentimes we don't hear from the people who are on the front line, uh, the front lines of climate change. And I want their voices to be brought in and to be shared. So, you know, we're looking at climate change from, you know, looking at it with a justice angle and sort of seeing where the inequities are, seeing how, um, whether it be countries, regions, communities, how they are being impacted and how they are responding. And, you know, really sort of also bringing it back to what can we do? What can we do both as individuals and what can we do you know, as a government, as a city, New York, as a state, and, you know, bring that out in a creative, hopefully in a accessible, engaging way. So to kind of break down some of that misinformation and uh, some of that, the break down the complexity so that people don't feel that they don't feel scared or intimidated by the content, but that, that they feel that they can engage with it. Right. It's, it's, it's an old, um, oh, I guess it's, it's an old adage and there's some place, you know, keep it simple, keep it simple, stupid. Not that any of this is stupid, but the simpler we can keep it both for the complexity of what this is about and also the mindset in today's world. Cause we have short attention spans to capture attention, but once you get attention, you can keep it for a long period of time. As we all know from, at least I can say this, from sitting on the couch during the pandemic, watching ridiculous things for hours on end and binging on some crazy episodes. So we do have we do have our attention when it's there, but to capture that attention, it's got to be a little bit more simplistic. And it does, it can be overwhelming, I think, at, at, at first. At first can, I, can I just quickly add? Because Absolutely. Was, I think all of us were, you know, who, 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 who watched and listened to the inauguration on Wednesday were, were captivated, right? I mean, but I was blown away. Like I still, when I think of her, Amanda Gorman, when I think of her, her speaking and the poetry that she, like that she shared and the, the, the passion with which she, she spoke to the world. I mean, cause that was something that was, you know, um, today I shared with my class one of her poems that actually deals directly with, with climate change called Earthwise. Oh. And 
really beautiful. She's such a beautiful, like she's, she's a performer. She's a poet. Like she's, she's an activist. Like it's, it's, it's pretty extraordinary to, um, to sort of sit and take the time, like really take the time to listen to her and the way that she connects words. Um, but my students were all kind of like, wow. wow. And I say that only because, because I do think sometimes, you know, the, the academic articles, the big reports, the hundreds and hundreds of pages is daunting. The average person is not going to sort of sit and, and really sort of digest the IPCC report, but <laughs> Amanda Gorman speaking and, you know, can be moved and can understand, you know, climate change in, in ways that are, are really meaningful. Yeah, no, it goes, I mean, it, you know, I say everything goes back to the marketing of whatever it is. And that's really what it goes back to because the people that really need to hear the work that people like yourself are doing, aren't going to read those articles. They're just not going to do it because it's not, it's not, I don't, I don't want to say interesting enough, but maybe it's too dense or um, what did one of my students say about one of the books I had this semester? It was a little weighty, but they got it. it a little weighty. I thought that was a good, I thought that was a good term, a good term for it. No, I, I agree. I, I, I was, I was pretty riveted to the inauguration. I don't know how I got anything done on Wednesday. I didn't, I didn't get any Wednesday afternoon. I was like, it didn't, it didn't happen. I was thankful that I wasn't actually teaching on Wednesday. Wednesday is kind of my built in break day during the week. Um, but I was, I had my children watching it. Like we're all, you know, just kind of glued to, um, to the screen. No, I know this, this is going to air next week. So it's, but I don't think the inauguration is going to be old news by then, but I also was off on Wednesday cause I've been teaching this short semester class and, um, trying to work on my deck. In fact, the next day there was, I found all these typos and I'm like, I'm sorry guys, but I was doing this and watching the inauguration at the same time. So, so, so you get a pass, you get a pass. They gave, they gave, they definitely gave, they definitely gave me a pass. So this is, this center sounds very, very exciting. I can't wait to see what comes out of it. But I want to move away just a little bit about from what you're doing to just how you personally, everything's, the pandemic is just, I, I tell people we're going to be talking about this for forever, I suppose. Not for forever, but certainly for a long time. And how have you adapted? It's been a whole year. I cannot believe it's been an entire year since yeah. it started. Wow. I know. It's hard to believe. I remember just kind of anecdotally having a conversation with a, um, a CGA fellow who's with RBC Capital and we're having a, um, just a, a phone chat and he was watching data coming out of China. And if you're, you know, if you're an energy analyst, you're also going to be looking at sort of jet fuel consumption and, uh, where dem how demand is changing. And he had some really extraordinary data on foot traffic in airports in China and sort of seeing this, this real sort of decrease in foot traffic suggesting that wow this is you know this is much more serious mm -hmm. right becoming much more serious right it's um and then you know if we can all remember right this is what day is today january 22nd there was just kind of like between january february and early march it's just like the story just kept getting bigger it's like the snowball sort of moving across the world um uh, you know, and coming to the United States and coming to, you know, uh, very, very directly hitting New York. Um, yeah, we had to do a quick transition to, 
you know, online. So professionally, it was taking all of our spring classes and moving faculty to to Zoom, many of whom had never used Zoom before. You know, students who hadn't, you know, um, used Zoom before. So it was a real uh, big learning curve in a short period of time. Um, and it was really hard. I mean, it was hard professionally, but then it was also hard on a much more sort of personal level because I also saw students who were struggling, like emotionally struggling. Mm -hmm. Many of them were far, far from home. They couldn't return home. They were in apartments alone, not knowing when they would be sort of like free to go out and when they might be able to return to their home. Many of, I have a lot of international students. So there was just a lot of pain, right? There was a lot of emotional pain. There was a lot of um, fear that, um, that I think I very much sort of took in just, just, you know, in terms of how to teach, how to respond, how to respond with compassion, right. In a, in, in this time. And then of course, just, you know, I'm, I have, I'm a single parent to two, two children. So it's like, oh my gosh. And, 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 and and not just, and not just two children, but two boys. Let's. (laughs) (laughs) And I have two children that are now also remote at home (laughs) in a two bedroom apartment in Manhattan. (laughs) It was, um, it was pretty crazy. It was really crazy. And it was, you know, I don't know, looking back now, it kind of like, but I still have two children that are remote because they, their school hasn't gone back. So, you know, they remain remote. I just think we've, we've kind of normalized the, 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 the routine to a point where we kind of like are all moving into our respective little boxes to get online and to kind of go through our day. Right. And, you know, like you, Joanne, right. We're, we're doing lots of zoom, right. I taught this January was every day, five hours a day on zoom. So it's, I I have um, not been out. I have not just now that I'm thinking about, I have not been out of this apartment all day long today and I've been busy nonstop. Right. Exactly. And much of it in front of a screen and much, you know, so, yeah. So I think, you know, it was, was definitely hard. Um, it was, yeah, and uh, this is, you know, and I think it was just just so difficult to be processing, one, like so much change that's happening, like just in the immediate moment, uh, but then also trying to also keep the perspective of what's happening around the world and how, you know, I was healthy, my children remained healthy, you know, um, you know, I was, and I remain grateful. The fact that I've, you know, you know, um, myself and my kids, we've stayed healthy like during this, um, during this time. And, you know, I can, I'm fortunate to have a job where I can teach, Mm -hmm. you know, I can continue my work and still do it and still, you know, be home with my children. So, and I know that not everyone can, so I'm, I feel, like I'm very fortunate. Um, and yeah. And I think that's also been a check. It's interesting. And I, I'm going to, uh, Joanne, I'll send it to you. Uh, it's an extraordinary quote and I, I'm kind of angry at myself for, uh, not having 
her name right at the tip of my tongue. But it was a beautiful, beautiful and very, very moving quote about normal. And basically the gist of it is that the way we were living wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. You know, that lots of overconsumption and overextraction and exhaustion and depletion, like just a lot of taking taking away from rather than giving, um, giving to. And, you know, and in her, in this beautiful, you know, quote, she sort of talks about like, we can't go back to normal mm-hmm. because right. no, the normal that, that we had wasn't for, for, wasn't normal. Like it, there was something that we were off. Like when I think about my own children and I'm not like, I don't consider myself an A-type parent. I consider myself to be like kind of like middle of the road, but my kids were really scheduled. (laughs) Like I was scheduled. Like I would run to four or five different places like during the day while I was like back and forth between my office and another meeting and then do an evening event, you know, sometimes participate as a speaker or attend because I needed to be like get home at nine o'clock and then do it all, all over again the next day. And it was, you know, I think all of us were on over, many of us were on overdrive. And I think that, that stepping back, being forced to step back and sort of recognize that, um, you know, for me, that's been kind of something that I think as we do start to return to like our offices and, I, I I hope that there'll be this kind of a better measured approach so that we we don't it's it's we recognize that we have our lives are are multiple that you know there's of course our work but we have we have other things and that that's 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 part of who we are right that we don't have to you know sort of have those deep lines of separation. No, I, I could, couldn't agree more. I, I don't want to go back to the pace that I personally was keeping. Mm-hmm. Um, we could keep a little bit more of a pace. Like it would be nice if we were doing this and then I could go sit in a bar with you afterwards and we could have real martinis at some, not that my martinis aren't real, but someone else preparing it for me. That's, that's a nice thought. But um, I've, you know, one of the things that I've said repeatedly, and I probably said it on the podcast before, it's almost like, you know, God said, we're sending you to your rooms all now to think about what your lives were like and, Mm. and, 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 take a listen to what to what's coming back. So I think there's a lot of that. So I know you're a busy lady, single parent, got a couple of boys in the other room that are probably ready to bang on the door. But um, I want to f- uh, finish up with any advice that you might have for our listeners who want to do something about this whole issue of climate change and the environment. Um, anything, any advice that's on a small level that people can do? Cause I, again, even when it goes, what you were saying before about how changing our lives, it's all up to us. It's, you know, when we get into whatever the next normal is going to be, um, it's up to us and what, what our choices are. So I'm a big believer in little steps, but any advice you might have for. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that I do every semester, um, is I ask students to do a resource assessment, I just, I ask them, you know, the same way, like if you have a, like, you know, and I, I always use the example of the Fitbit, right? The Fitbit's kind of taking, calculating how many steps you're, you're, you're taking it, you know, whatever you're doing, it can kind of give you 
um, a look at, at that. And I always tell students like just the week before the class, just, you know, have a journal, have something that you set up so that you assess your consumption. Just take a look personally at, you know, if you're traveling, how you're traveling, like, are you traveling, traveling by train? Are you traveling by car? Just kind of understanding what's, what fuels the car, you know, for the most part here in New York, we'll be gasoline, right? Um, if you're taking flying, like understanding all of that so that we can kind of, so you can get a better, a better appreciation for the systems that, 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 contribute uh, that make happen our lives as we live them, but also then to kind of connect it to the consumption of resources. And like every semester students get more creative with how they do these assessments and some go really, really like they, 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 they time how long they take a shower. So they figure out how much water that they've used. They figure out how much water, like we call it virtual water, like how much water is in an almond, like to make, you know, how much water you need to, you know, a lot of water, a lot of water to, to produce almonds. Yeah. A lot of water, avocados, like if New York city, we're not growing avocados. So if you're having avocados, uh, that avocado is, is probably moving from somewhere else. It's probably being flown from, you know, maybe Mexico or other places where, you know, avocados are widely grown and just, it's not to say don't eat an avocado. It's just to kind of understand that there's a big system, energy system and resource system that supports the lives that we live. And where can we make some small changes? Where could we, you know, there's a big push in the United States and China. It's already a, a very massive push towards electric vehicles, right? That would not run on petroleum that wouldn't run on gasoline, but would be, you know, the electric charge. So, you know, I think just like just seeing where you, all of us can make some small incremental changes. Education, I think is, is there's so many, like this is Joanne's podcast is the best podcast, (laughs) but there are lots of good podcasts on climate change and on energy. The BBC has a really smart one called the climate question, the energy gang. Like you can go from very high level to like understanding sort of the policy conversations and the path, like the technological pathway solutions to just having kind of a a much sort of more conversational inside look into climate change. So there's a whole range of great great podcasts that are currently available, as well as books. Um, in fact, I had two books that I assigned. And it's funny when you said the heaviness. So my students, the second book was called um, uh, Making Climate Policy Work. Great book, fantastic on sort of just understanding sort of policy policies and what, what, what the two authors, uh, David Victor and, and Danny Collinwood, how they see um, effective policymaking or ineffective policymaking. But then the other one was called All We Can Save. And it's a uh, collection of essays and poetry and some all by, all by women. And my students loved it because it's, you know, kind of, it's, you know, in a book, you can travel around the world. So the, 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 the stories are from across the globe. And 
the essays are interspersed with with poetry, and they're interspersed with you know uh, Gina McCarthy, who's our new U.S. climate czar, who's um, in the White House, you know, looking at domestic climate policy. She has an essay in the book, so it's just a really great, easy to read, engaging, but it also provides that you know that context that um that matters or reach out to me feel free to reach out to me and i'll send you lots of resources <laughs> and i'll try and put the uh, links to that book and some of those podcasts into the into the show notes but as you i just want to just finish with this here is that as you were speaking i'm thinking maybe what the new lab needs to do is create some sort of an app to track all this mm. kind of like my weight watchers app because i think it's just so phenomenal how I could track everything, see where I am and see my progress and what the effect is. So maybe that's a project for the lab. What do you think? I, I love it. You know, you know, it's interesting. So many, like many of your listeners may have actually the ability to track their electricity. For example, like Con Ed, you can download their app and you can see how much like over the course of the day. I didn't know that your, you know, your consumption, right? You can see so much, how much electricity you're using. You can see sort of like, oh, I just turned on my washing machine. So it's, it's up, or you can also see where prices. So it might be cheaper to do laundry in the evening rather than during the peak period. Uh, so there are some great apps that are out there that, um, but I think having kind of the WeChat app of, um, for consumption, I think is great. Actually, it's funny just to share maybe a final a final thought on the assessment of of consumption. A um, a friend of mine, she remembered hearing about this class assignment, so she interviewed me for a piece that she wrote in the New Yorker because she had come across a group. I, I think in Pennsylvania, I'm not hundred. I don't. Um, she had come across a group that for Lent. They gave up carbon. <laughs> I, I actually read that article when I was prepping for this. Yes, I'm going to link yeah. that. I'm going to link that in the show notes too. Yeah. So the, it was it was a piece by Eliza Griswold who got the Pulitzer Prize for um, Amity and Prosperity, but she was you know she found herself with this group and they were trying to reduce their carbon and that was part of their Lenten like pledge um, and you know again I think you know some people make choices in their lives very specifically around wanting to reduce their consumption. So if you want to reduce your carbon consumption, there are specific ways you can do so. Um, but again, I, I really do just, you know, think it's just important to have that, um, to have that understanding and that curiosity. I'm a big, I know Joanne is as well. We, we really love, love learning. We're, cur- we're curious by nature. And so you take that curiosity into something that you don't know and you learn about it and, you know, it becomes much less threatening and much less scary. Yes. Curiosity and always be learning. The secrets to saying young. Carolyn, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. If people want to follow you on social media, where would you suggest they, they go? Um, I'm at Carolyn Kassan on Twitter. I have a LinkedIn page, but you'll all love to know that I have, was told at the beginning um, of my conversation with Joanne that I have to um, upgrade my LinkedIn page. So uh, 
it doesn't sound like it's uh, up to the standards of, of Joanne. So that'll be a project <laughs> I'll be working on this weekend. Um, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm very bad, I have to admit, but I think I need to work on my social media. It's, you know, it's interesting, Joanne, because it's been a, um, it's been something that I've really have wanted to do because I do think that I want to be, I want to position myself as a thought leader. I want to sort of position myself, not, not just in the academic world, but, you know, so, and I, I, it's something that you need to curate and build. Mm -hmm. So I really welcome the fact that you do this podcast and you bring in people who can kind of, and you yourself do it in your classes. So um, I'm going to be hiring you to help me with my own branding. <laughs> so oh, I can, there you go. Who knew? No, but you know, you have a voice and that can help, uh, can help the education process on this too, because you're coming from a point of expertise, but you also can explain this stuff in um, what I call layperson's terms. So thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I really appreciate it. And thank you all out there who took the time to listen. Um, and always a pleasure to get the, get the opportunity to sit down with Joanne. And uh, um, we don't have our martinis. We have to make sure that we have our martinis. I know we may have one now, but I'm not going to tell anybody. <laughs> I won't tell if you don't tell on me. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to Marketing Mindfulness and Martinis. If you liked what you heard, please share with your friends. Give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify so other people can find us and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. If you've got a question you'd like answered or a topic you'd like me to cover, please drop me a note. Info at joannetombrakis.com. And until next time, remember... Whatever got you to where you are isn't enough to keep you there. <laughs>